I have that written down, but what if I forget everything else? What if I welcome people to the wrong podcast? That's fine. Say it's about cheap records instead of inexpensive records. What if that happens? I'll, I'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're ready over here, Sean. I have 96 okay. other samples of you saying just that thing. Yeah, so That's true. I yeah, I was just thinking, why do I even re- why do I even repeat that at this point? Like I'm sure there's a solid example of me doing the first few seconds of this podcast somewhere. No, it's for comfort. Each one has to be special snowflake. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, understudy to the undersecretary of understanding. I'm way down underneath you here, Sean, and I am co-host Jeremy, persistent rejector of any and all types of mustards. (laughs) That's understandable. Ah! I am co-host Peter Cook, researcher of music people named David Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> Any other people, or have you just kind of narrowed it down to that? You really established your calling, your niche in the music history field? Oh, yeah. Well, in researching for this episode, I learned that there were enough David Briggs in the music industry to you could basically just focus on those people for a career so here i am it's all decided today (laughs) clarity true so what uh what record are we going to talk about i just want to celebrate you know our beloved billionaires blasting themselves into space not going to celebrate their return as much more so the blasting off (laughs) With a very special record called Moonshot. Oh, so you were fair. wondering where I was going with that, weren't you? And then I saw the record cover and saw the words Moonshot right before you got to it, and I liked where you were going with it. Saw Buffy and Moonshot just staring you down. Yep. Well, it's Buffy Saint Marie Moonshot. I'm gonna start with the song Moonshot. Start with the title track. Off into outer space you go, my friends. We wish you bon voyage. And when you get there, we will welcome you. And still you wonder at it all. So primitive, he can call me up with 
tongues the noble languages Entombed in some great English class Up into outer space you go, my friends We wish you bon voyage And when you get there we you bone voyage billionaires true i love how relevant this song is i don't know if you guys paid attention to the lyrics but from my understanding the thrust of the song is especially it becomes clear in the last verse more so that we didn't get to but it's about you know western science and essentially white people going off to the moon and not really knowing why they're doing it and also simultaneously this view of indigenous peoples as being primitive as she describes there but actually being you know more spiritually aware of why you would do something like that Mm -hmm. yeah and this album is 1972 so would have been post space race, mm-hmm. or like right, right after, in the like space. You're kind of in it towards the uh, towards the tail end of of it, yeah. So it's clearly topical for her to be talking about this. True, topical again. Again, it's not not her first time nor her last. Yeah, it's uh, it's got layers. This stuff's got layers. If if you guys noticed on your listen, did what do you guys think on your listens? I'm familiar with Buffy St. Marie. I mainly know what is included on the best of Buffy St. Marie compilation. It's a double LP that I believe it's her first six albums that are represented on that. That came out in 1970. Yeah, it came out before this album came out, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so none of these songs were on that. So this was all new to me. And it sounds like the Buffy St. Marie that I know, of course, she has gone many different directions in her career. And she's, you know, gone in, at heart, a folk musician, but she's gone in very experimental directions and very pop directions. As I understand it, this is actually kind of considered, or at least at the time, was sort of reviewed critically as a bit of a commercial bid for her. Yeah, that's true. They, the supposed nature of it is that the record label was putting pressure on her to put out something more commercially accessible because in 1969 she put out an album called illuminations that has become kind of a cult classic sort of album that was the first quadraphonic electronic vocal album ever made (laughs) and 
It is wild. I don't know if you guys have heard it before or listened to it, but it is highly experimental. Yeah, there's six tracks from that on the best of Buffy St. Marie, which is actually funny because that compilation was put together by the company, the record company, as a way of trying to get her commercial, her sales back up after the failure of Illuminations. Yeah, it was a huge flop. That's kind of crazy they would put all those on there. Yeah, that they would put that many tracks from it on there still. Yeah, and it's time it was a flop, but now it's like this celebrated gem. It's not one you're going to find in a dollar bin, or mm. if you do, snatch it up. Yeah. How about you, Sean? What's your take on Buffy St. Marie? Everything I've heard so far I've liked, but I'm not overly familiar. I don't I don't own any Buffy records. I've kind of more recently kind of got her on my radar. I've used a few Buffy tracks here and there for playlists for previous episodes. And I liked what I heard. It's, you know, it's unique. It's distinctive. She seems to be unafraid of trying new things and making like interesting choices that you wouldn't always consider to be commercially successful choices even on this record the one that's supposed to be commercial like <laughs> there's a lot of experimental elements going on here and i dig it I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to a lot more buffy and picking up a few in the dollar bins yeah yeah she's steadfast and true in her in her ways as an artist mm -hmm. she's been, been respect that very uncompromising i mean even this you know this is probably supposed to be her compromised record and i still think it's outstanding and not commercial. I yeah. don't understand how any of these songs could really get commercial traction in yeah. that sense. In 72, especially. Yeah. Highly far out singer. And let me tell you a little about this highly far out singer. So you have some context for all of this, because I think the context is very important with her music. So we're going back 1941, where she was born in Canada. She's Canadian. She's, uh, I mean, we'll get to it more later, but she's contemporaries of Leonard Cohen and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, part of that heady, smart Canadian blooming of musicians that happened at that time. But she was born in 1941 in Canada at the Piapot Reserve. She is indigenous by birth, and she was adopted out to America as a child, which was pretty common practice in those days. They would just take babies from the reserve and adopt them out to white people to, you know, erasure, to get rid of their culture and erase their future without having to genocide them. Getting heavy right out of the gate. Yeah, just starting off right there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you don't get heavy about that. Like, yeah, she was totally. born I and mean, she was taken from her parents and shipped to a different country to like be brought up basically as a white person. Well, I think that alone is the catalyst for everything that has followed in her life mm -hmm. to this day. And it would be unfair to try and tell her story without acknowledging these, you know, heavier aspects as, as we've done with other artists, you know, that have been persecuted. You gotta, you gotta tell the complete story. True. So she grew up in Wakefield, Massachusetts and was adopted by Alfred and Winifred St. Marie from interviews. It seems like she 
did like have some respect for her mother. She doesn't say anything about her father and also mentions that she endured abuse as a child, but did not get into details about any of that. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like she had, you know, not a great childhood growing up either. Uh, she was a very good student. She graduated top 10 in her class at University of Massachusetts and got a degree in teaching and in Oriental philosophy. She began playing music at age three. She started playing piano, and then in her teens, she taught herself guitar. Uh, apparently, she had all kinds of crazy tunings that she had just kind of made up and would use. Like open tunings? Yeah, like 30 of them or something that she would use. <laughs> she had a crazy amount that was surprising to me because as a guitar player i'm not sure why why you would need all those tunings or what it would do so it's intriguing to me some people get into that for me it was always a headache to remember the right the chord shapes in the proper tuning yeah it kind of throws your theory out the window yeah or at least your like automatic ability well it's, she's into experimentation true so she begins performing her songs publicly when she's in college. She was writing songs in her teens, but not really performing them. It was also during this time in college that she began meeting with indigenous activists and scholars and was interested in learning about herself and reconnecting to her indigenous roots. Um, and it was at this time that she actually traveled back to the reservation that from doing a bunch of research and stuff, she found, you know, the reservation she had come from and they talked to like people there and were able to find uh, the guy, at least, who was likely her father, who then adopted her back into the tribe. She's Cree, correct? Yeah. Yep, and it's uh, Piapot is her like family last name. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're talking 1964 here. She's doing college, growing up, and she's also like this is when she starts launching into her music career. At the same time, she's in this hardcore self-discovery mode through then. So she puts out her first album, It's My Way, on Vanguard Records in that same year, 1964. That record was added to the Library of Congress in 2016. Her debut album. Her debut album. And the album includes one of her biggest and earliest songs, Universal Soldier. Mm, yeah. That was a, it's like one of the earliest anti-Vietnam songs. Mm -hmm. At the time, America wasn't even acknowledging that we had troops in Vietnam. So she apparently sold the rights to this song also for a dollar at this point in her career and then ended up buying back the rights 10 years later for $25,000. Oh, wow. Wow. So she got a, a rough introduction to the music business and how how people work in that industry. Mm-hmm. I'd buy that for $25,000. True. The, and right away in her first album, she also was beginning to address the mistreatment of indigenous peoples in Canada and America. And this stuff was a little surprising to me because I think 
for our non-American listeners out there, Americans carry this idea that the Canadians are the polite, kinder, gentler version of Americans. <laughs> and in this uh, instance, and in that regard, they were not. They were every bit as horrible as we were yep. to Indigenous people. Yeah, First Nations people have been through some very hard times. Yeah. I, I was reading at one point she was commissioned to like put stuff in a museum and put an electric chair from one of the resident, they called them residential schools where they would take indigenous people from their families and put them in these schools to try and culturally change them so that they were out of touch with their, you know, roots and their culture. Mm -hmm. And they also would just, do like barbaric abuse, including an electric chair that they use for modifying their behaviors. You know, if they're acting up, putting these kids in a literal electric chair that wouldn't zap them enough to kill them, but well, apparently in some cases it did as well. So, yeah, she displayed one of these electric chairs from the residential schools in the museum in Canada. So, yeah, she doesn't shy away from telling the truth on that front mm -hmm. and that started right away in her first album yeah so she right alongside people like phil oaks and bob dylan was doing protest music yeah and she started like universal soldier became a pretty big song for her and she kind of got you know the feeling phil oaks and bob dylan and all these other people they're kind of covering the anti-war effort and that's where she really kind of shifted her at least her songs that were protest songs to being more about you know indigenous peoples that were largely ignored at this point in time you're talking 60s and into the 70s there was not a lot of attention being paid to that so on all that light notage let me uh, put another song on what are we going to do next? Let's do let's do Native North American Child for the next song. Fitting. That's a good one. i 
about that song that I wanted to kind of point out that I think is important in context of all of her work is there's like an element of positivity and hope running through that. And while she could absolutely write scathing protest songs, that represents actually a pretty small amount of her catalog, the songs that are very directly negative, And a lot of them I mean, she's kind of weaving, you know, elements of protest things into it with positivity and hope mixed in and also just love songs and songs about togetherness. Uh, she, yeah, I feel like she merges lots of different things into each individual song often. It's rarely just, you know, this is a protest song and I'm going to talk about why the war sucks. Yeah, that one sounds like a celebration. She gets the message across, but it's, you'd almost, as a listener, you're almost uh, forced to go along with her, how she feels about it, rather than getting hit over the head with a message. It's just like you want to, yeah, (laughs) I'm feeling this. Yeah, you know, it's interesting with what you were saying, Jeremy, about this erasure of cultural history that was going on so it's so valuable to have songs like this and like you were saying at a time when there was not much dialogue happening around first nations rights and identities and things like that so for her to record these songs kind of like reclaiming her like pride and heritage i think is is super important alongside those protest songs you got to have that like radical positivity and imagination along with protesting the evil in the world Very true, and I think that really set her apart from a lot of her contemporaries. Though I would say, I would say her Canadian contemporaries all seem to share this to me, like, in my reading to a degree. Like, Leonard Cohen would mix in protesty messages, but rarely were his songs, like, overt protest songs. Similarly with Neil Young and... Joni Mitchell had some more overt ones, but she also had much more subtle ones that, you know, were about a lot of different things at once. So, yeah, unlike her, I'd say the American counterparts at this time, Phil Oakes, uh, Bob Dylan actually witnessed her performing in Greenwich Village and was blown away by Buffy and got her in at the Gaslight, which is one of the bigger folky clubs in New York at that time. So he was a fan, but I mean, at that time he's writing really overt political things that they're deeper in a way, but they're not really about other things. That's Buffy at this point. By the time she hits age 24, she realizes she's pretty much going to be fiscally set the rest of her life. You know, she's never going to wonder about where her next meal is going to come from again. So at 24, 
she starts funding scholarships for people, for Native American people and reservations who can't afford to be going to college. She starts providing scholarships, which seems crazy at age 24. Yeah, that's a... It's a very, you know, mature worldview for someone that young uh, to be, you know, writing these personal songs and writing these songs for entire groups of people and then also like trying to give back and support in physical ways like that. It's admirable for sure. Yeah, and she continued that through her life. She's been an activist. She was on Sesame Street for a while after she put out this album. Just from... I mean, she said her message was basically to tell kids that Native Americans exist still because the way schools are teaching it, it makes it sound like they were here and then now they're just gone somewhere. Yeah, or like the ones that are here are doing fine because they, you know, they got assistance and casinos and stuff. At least that's like the story that I feel like a lot of was told in America to yeah. a lot of people as like, you know, just another facet of the cultural erasure. True. Probably not to kids. Maybe. Maybe people are telling their kids they're fine. They have casinos. I mean, I feel like that was the general message that I got, but it was, you know, not a mild, not a model education or childhood on my end. <laughs> Homeschooled, correct? That's right. <laughs> so Buffy, her first three albums are in the folky vein with some experimentation. But then she starts going out in a lot of different directions, started adding like rock electric elements. But then she did an album produced by Chet Atkins and went a more country sound. Heard of him. You've heard of Chet? Yeah, I've heard of Chet Atkins. Didn't, didn't he have a, have something to do with the Nashville sound? Old Chester. (laughs) That's the one. And then after that album is when she put out the Experimental Illuminations album. And yeah, this is her turn. This is her eighth album at this point in 1972. So she's cranking out about one a year. And this is her attempt to be more commercial, I guess, because the Memphis horns are on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She did this in Nashville. So Yeah, she did this in Nashville with the Nashville A-Team. We're talking Charlie McCoy and Billy Sanford on guitar. I think we had Charlie McCoy on a handful of albums from this mm. podcast. Yeah, it's hard not to. He was a big player in Nashville. Yeah, Kenny Boutry. Is that how you say it? How's it spelled? It's spelled Butray. <laughs> It'd be Butry, wouldn't it? Butry. Kenny Butry on drums. Also, Nashville A-Team. All these people have been on everything. They're all over the place. (laughs) Wow, so informative. The uh, guy on keys, David Briggs, caused a little bit of confusion. The Wikipedia article had it linked to a guy born in 1963 who was an organist. And it's like, this, this guy wasn't nine years old on this album. But there's also, of course, David Briggs who produced a good chunk of Neil Young's work, but to my knowledge, he wasn't really a session player. So I looked into it further. Yeah. This is a guy who co-owned the studio that this was recorded at with one of the other guys. Yeah. And I was also especially thrown because the album right before this 
which is she used to want to be a ballerina. She used Crazy Horse, mm-hmm. the Neil Young's band. So I just assumed it was the same that, da- that David Briggs. <laughs> that David Briggs. Yeah. Well, then later she was married to Jack Nietzsche, who also has a strong Neil Young connection. So, yeah. so it's I can see why you would think, yeah, that's the clearly that's the David Briggs who produced Neil Young albums, but seems to be a different one. Also, the aforementioned Kenny Buttry, the same year as this record played on Neil Young's Harvest, mm-hmm. which was not produced by David Briggs. That's one of the few right. one of the few Neil Young albums not produced by David Briggs. Yeah, Kenny Buttry was in the Stray Gators, which was Neil's live band. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, he also it looks like he also played on Borderland by Chris Christopherson the same year. Well, Sean, I already said they played on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to uh, give some actual detail to this episode. Okay, well, uh, in the next 45 minutes, we're going to talk about all the albums Charlie McCoy is on. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do it. No, I then changed we'll, my then mind. We'll cut it and put it as a bonus Patreon episode. I changed my mind. We're going to spend an hour and a half talking about all the albums the Memphis Horns are on. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Well, Memphis Horns, who were brought onto this to help make it more commercial, was the idea. And it's Wayne Jackson on trumpet, Andrew Love on tenor sax, and they're a split off of the Marquees. And they are on 83 different gold and platinum albums. They're on over 100 charting singles. And they're on, like, almost all the Stax recordings. They're everywhere as well. Yeah. So she brings in the Memphis horns. That me- that's her way of selling out. I guess, yeah. Although, you know, uh, we have established, though, that there was this time period where it seemed like a lot of artists were getting hits or revitalizing their careers by getting this kind of Southern soul type sound. Like, you know, there's the the Herbie Mann record that we talked about. They did a similar thing with Dusty Springfield around this time that worked out really well. So it was like kind of a tried and true uh, music industry formula right around this, this time period. Hmm. They tried to put Buffy in a formula and it, it came out weird. But this sold, this album sold. Yeah, this is this had her biggest hit on it. Mm-hmm. You guys want to do the hit next? Let's do the hit next. Yeah. What is the hit? We are going to do Mr. Can't You See? And this was written by Mickey Newberry, who's awesome, and Towns Van Zandt, who is also awesome. Though you won't find cheap Towns Van Zandt records. <laughs> no. You can find some Mickey Newberry's cheap, though. Yeah, he's best known for writing Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In. <laughs> oh, right, right. Recorded by the first edition with Kenny Rogers on lead vocals. But yeah, this is one that he co-wrote with Towns Van Zandt. Yeah, side B, track five, Mr. Casey.
I love it. That driving quality of that song with those horns. And then on top of it all, Buffy's voice, which is always what really sells me whenever I listen to her. Yeah, we've kind of danced around. We haven't addressed directly one of the most Buffy things about Buffy, which is her intense voice that has multiple dimensions to it. And there you really hear her like with it when she pushes it. It's uh, I love it, but it's also polarizing. Yeah, it's not unlike Melanie's voice. I think that they have similar voices, you know, who we, Melanie, we covered very early on in this podcast, but they're distinct from each other. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like Buffy leans into the more unique elements of her voice more than Melanie does, but I definitely made that connection as well. And there's a Melanie track on the playlist. Spoiler alert. <laughs> we'll talk about that shortly, but yeah, you know, in listening to her voice and thinking about those unique qualities of the voice, the the first two singers that kind of came to mind as an interesting comparison are uh, Tiny Tim, who we did an episode about recently, but also Yoko Ono, who I know Peter and I really want to do an episode on. I'm sure that'll be happening in season three. And I started thinking more about how there's this kind of depressing trend in record collecting culture, especially, you know, the straight white dude record collecting culture, which is the majority of it, but there's this depressing trend of really like hating on women singers with unique voices. Whereas there's countless examples of male singers with very unique or often slightly grating voices who are celebrated for their uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely heard plenty of record collectors be like, Oh, Buffy records or stuff is garbage. That illuminations record is pretty cool. Cause there's like fuzz guitar on it, but everything else is just, you know, skip it yeah. or like, you know, the, the common, trope of like oh yoko ono's terrible the music's awful and she broke up the beatles fuck her you know but it's like i'm just so sick of those opinions like well, one of the most obvious ones to me is people who hate on janice joplin but love led zeppelin like mm. those voices are so similar <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it, it just it yeah it's definitely a sexist take I have a confession, guys. I I don't really like Joanna Newsom still. This is a, a unique thing, though. I'd like to think it's not because I'm sexist. And I love Karen Dalton, whose voice is like, you know, just down the road from where Joanna Newsom's well, at. And but... you, you liked the Melanie record, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the one presenting this Buffy record, so I think it's okay to just sometimes not care for a certain singer. But, uh, you know, as long as you're not going around, like, really talking trash, like, you know, Joanna Newsom's music can be respected, whether it's completely your thing or not. True. People tell me she's a fantastic songwriter, but I haven't listened for long enough to know on any given song. But it's okay to not like a thing. Just don't trash it. Just say it's not for me. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you don't like it because you don't understand it or it's just not speaking to you. Just... Let people enjoy things. <laughs> Unless that thing is Aerosmith. <laughs> oh, Sean, why you gotta hate on that now? Don't be a hater. It's okay to hate on bands with too much toxic masculinity. That's the rule. Huh. So Aerosmith and Kiss are okay for you to hate on. Absolutely. Go to town on hating those two bands. You have my permission. <laughs> <laughs> the only permission we need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
everyone's been wondering if it's okay to hate on Kiss yet, and I'm here to tell you, it's okay. Read any snippet of an interview with Gene Simmons, and you will be completely Ugh. justified. I was hoping that in season three we would cover all four of the solo Kiss albums. Oh, <laughs> keep on waiting, bud. Oh, boy. You know, another singer that Buffy slightly reminded me of that is a singer that Jeremy covered on the podcast before, Ima Sumak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, obviously coming from different cultural backgrounds and recording in different decades and with different genres, but side by side, the music has a lot of interesting comparisons and connections. Yeah, they both use like a wide variety of voices. Yeah. In the music, I think would be like the the parallel there. Yeah, and they're both kind of seemingly unafraid of making this unique and intense and experimental music and just owning it and then making money off of it. Like, mad respect for that. She had a pretty wide range of instruments that she was competent on, didn't she? Does it, I should, doesn't she? She's still around. Yeah, uh, I didn't make a list. I know yeah. she is very into experimentation with uncommon instruments. Mm -hmm. She was also one of the earliest people dinking around with synthesizers. She had a hold of synthesizers way early on and was using them on like the Illuminations record. She was doing digital recording way early. She was using, is it uh, Fairlight? Like music sequencer, synthesizer kind of deal. She was using those super early on, just over and over and over. She seems in tuned or maybe even ahead of the game, technologically speaking. I also read a thing that her, she had an album in the 90s that she turned into her record label over the internet, and it was the first album sent over the internet. Oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so through her whole life, she has been... She's utilized technology to further her experimentation with, with her music and with her art. She also was doing image manipulation very early on with computers and has had stuff displayed. Oh, we could talk about Buffy for another hour, but we, we don't have time to get into all of it. She acted. She was on Sesame Street also, like I said. She was the first indigenous person to win an Academy Award for a song she wrote, Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong. Or I think it's just called Up Where We Belong. Yeah, that was from An Officer and a Gentleman. Yep, and she was, it was another 30 years before an indigenous person won an Academy Award after her as well. So there's... There's a lot more we could talk about Buffy. We'll either have to do another episode or you're just going to have to go read up on her yourself. She has a biography out there if you want to dig in more, but we just don't have time. We can't cover it all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thankfully, you know, if you were to rank all of or categorize all of the I'd buy that for a dollar selections in terms of how easy they are to find this record, as well as the majority of Buffy's catalog, is very easy to find. Even in, you know, thrift stores or places like that, you can find these Buffy records, and I haven't heard a bad one yet. They're all interesting and worth picking up. 
Yeah, and she's incredible voice, incredible songwriter. I think that's where she's most underappreciated in my mind is her songwriting is fantastic. Um, the way she blends so many elements together in so few words, just brilliant. Sean, Dad, do you have a playlist for us? Oh, I've got a playlist. Many of the artists we've mentioned on this episode so far in there, Tiny Tim, Ima Sumac, Yoko Ono, as well as some other really good dollar bin artists with unique vocals. I put the song Broken English by Marion Faithful on there. There's <laughs> that's, a, a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. There's a Morgana King song on there. Uh, an artist named Shirley Verrett who does like a opera folk crossover style that's really interesting. I put a Redbone track on there, another First Nations group from this time period. Quicksilver Messenger Service from the Quicksilver album that we covered recently. Joni Mitchell, Dusty Springfield, Odetta, Ian and Sylvia, Cat Stevens, Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, and of course, Jimmy Spheris is on there. You know he's got to be on there. Melanie, Joan Baez, and uh, Richard Harris for another example of dollar bin unique vocalists. You can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this and all of our other episode accompanying playlists. Wonderful. Please remember that you can always support the podcast and get bonus content in return by subscribing to our Patreon, where you can pledge at different tiers. At a dollar, you can get early access to episodes. $5 a month will get you that early access along with bonus episodes. And the $20 tier gets you all that, plus the vinyl subscription, where once a month, we will send you at least a couple selections, right, Sean? We usually send out a couple yes. things. With a hand... Uh, you know, for a long time, it was a LP and a 45, but most of the time, people are getting two LPs now. I don't know if that sweetens the deal for anyone out there. <laughs> so you can get that along with a handwritten note. There's a few slots left at that $20 tier, so you can check that out at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. But if you don't have the money to support the podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. A few kind words can go a long way to getting us more listeners. Or just some kind words to your bud. Yeah, word just, of mouth. You know, you're a podcast dork if you're listening to this podcast. You probably <laughs> have podcast dork friends that have a hundred different podcasts in their feed. Just tell them about us. Yeah, send the dorks our way. The dorks love welcome us. welcome all dorks. Yeah. <laughs> Some more dork podcast friends. Someday we'll be king of the dorks. All three of us will rule by tribunal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, do we have any uh, final thoughts here as we wind things down on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Well, I'm contractually obligated to leave us with the song Jeremiah. <laughs> because it's almost my name. I forget that it's not your name because we refer to you as that. Not so much on the podcast, but I think in the uh, Facebook Messenger group that we discuss things on, you are Jeremiah, aren't you? 
True. <laughs> and me calling Sean, Sean dad has just kind of melted into the podcast at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that does happen <laughs> on Mike sometimes. I believe my daughter refers to Jeremy as Jeremiah more often than his actual name. True. It's because I'm always in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We need to let you know. You fucked up when you hear that word. <laughs> well, aside from, you know, me having to play it because it's my name, it's also a great song that once again encourages hope and specifically action as well. Like the message I take from this song is, you know, don't just get upset about things. Like imagine a different thing and do it. Like mm -hmm. do something about it. So yeah, some are some singer songwriters who like to address injustice sometimes don't, you don't really feel that sense of being offered a solution. And even when she's not necessarily offering a solution, it feels like she's saying, you know, take this on, you know, be active, like get on the ball. <laughs> True. She's, and she's made a career of a life of doing that. I watched a fairly recent interview with her. It was probably within the last five years or so. And, you know, she's still dedicated to all of the same causes all these years later. True. Still making art, still making music. She is forever an artist. She's not one of these, you know, I made some cool stuff in my 20s and I'm just going to go out on a reunion tour every 10 years to make my money and go live on my in my mansion. Mm -hmm. It's an artist through and through. So I leave you with her song, Jeremiah. All right. Well, this concludes yet another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Peter Cook. We'll see ya. I'm Sean Hartman. Goodbye. And I am Jeremiah Ruggles. Adios. Adios. <laughs>